Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you tonight. Um, we haven't met him, Father Brian Stidham, the, the local pastor here at St. Mary's, um, to restart another series of Trust Truth. Such a, a joy. Someone was asking me recently about the origin. Why, why do we call this whole thing Trust Truth? It, the, the program started with this guy, Seth Conklin, and uh, another friend, Josh Parker, were sitting on the porch, and they said, Father, we got to do something different. And that, that brought around a, our own version of what some people call theology on tap. Um, but the name Trust Truth was in the, inspired in our own little chapel there at St. Mary's. As I was praying before, the Divine Mercy image, maybe you're familiar with it, it said that beautiful image of Jesus that at the base says, Jesus, I trust in you. The trust was obscured, and what I, my eyes saw was T-R-U, and I couldn't make out the rest of the word. I know what it says, but in my head, what it said was truth. T-R-U just looked like the word truth. I, I, I swear I know what it says, but as I moved my head, it said trust, and it felt like the right, the right uh, origin for, uh, for the whole, what that we're all about. You know, we live in a world that uh, is, is rather, rather suspect of, well, just about everything, um, but we're ultimately, ultimately searching for truth, and the truth that finds its origin and fulfillment in, in Jesus Christ. Um, where we're going to start uh, our series tonight, um, well, this gentleman to my right, we've known, it just occurred to me today, it's 25 years this year, uh, that, uh, North, uh, then uh, seminarian Raymond D'Souza, as I went to the North American College, he was the year ahead of me, and since then, what a joy. Uh, we at one point had neighboring parishes when I was uh, in Clayton, and he was on Wolf Island. We could see each other's parishes. We could wave to each other's parishes, though we never did that. We just went and visited each other. Um, and whenever I travel around the country and visit other mutual friends from seminary, they always um, end up coming back to talking about the great work that Father Raymond's doing um, in, the, in the writing. Uh, we, many of us follow his, his great uh, writing and many different capacities. They always have comments about it, but um, boy, ultimately, um, they're a little jealous that I get to visit with him and, and hang out with him and uh, share in those joys firsthand. One last thing before I get uh, hand over the microphone, just on a, on a personal note, um, this man preached the most significant holy hour in my family's lives. Uh, the, night before, the night before my ordination, July 19th, 2003, um, he, I asked him to preach the Holy Hour, and it changed the, the course of many, of many of my family's lives, uh, in particular my father. So he always holds a special place in my, my family's hearts, and um, yeah, with that, uh, I didn't ask you, are you praying or am I? This, I'm going to do, a, okay, I've got one more thing. <laughs> thank you, Father. Join me in prayer, please. Lord our God, we thank you and praise you for the gift of life, and the gift of love, the, the gift of truth. We ask that you might give us hearts that trust it all, all that is true and good and beautiful. May it draw us ever closer to you. We ask we bless upon our speaker, all those gathered here this night, all those unable to be with us, and those who will hear about this day in the future. Draw us ever closer into your light and love, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Brian.
So, uh, this is a little bit of an odd setup because <laughs> if I speak to you, I've got my back turned to them, or if I speak to you, I've got my back turned to them. So this is sort of a this is a double ad orientum kind of uh, <laughs> setup we have here. But so, but there's a good microphone, so it's a, it's good to be here. I spent most of my priesthood in the city of Kingston or Wolf Island, uh, but. Two years ago, I moved to Kempville, which is uh, very close to here. So it's actually about 45 minutes, sometimes a little bit more. Uh, so I've been coming to visit much more, Father Brian here at St. Mary's. So some of you have I've met, and uh, I always like coming here. So thank you for the invitation. I didn't know about the, uh, is it Seth and uh, Joshua who had uh, provided the uh, impetus for this. So congratulations. For that, I um, I'm often when I visit St. Mary's and I see what's going on there. I often say the same thing you said. We something should be different around here. <laughs> but, um, so um, and here is something different. So that's so, so good for you, Seth, for <laughs> expressing the view of a lot of the parishioners there at, uh, at St. Mary's in Canton. Uh, so we have about 20 minutes or so, and then I think it's mostly questions and conversations. That's the general idea, so I might go a bit longer than that. But the, so if you read the, maybe you just came because you're, you like the series, but if you read the title, which is about the Catholic leader we need today, referring to cancel culture, and then there's a little further description, and it says that I want to introduce you to a figure that you should know about, but you perhaps don't know about. So I don't know that. Perhaps I'm not, uh, maybe I'm underestimating your historical knowledge. But uh, the cancel culture part is actually, I'll get, I'll get to that a bit later. But if I was just to start off by asking uh, for Americans here, who would you say is the greatest statesman in the history of the United States? It's not a correct, did you have President's Day just recently? We did. Okay, when was that? Yesterday. Oh, so you probably were all spending some of the day reflecting on the presidents of the United States. A lot of time reflecting. Isn't that the point of the day, is to reflect on American history? Isn't that the idea of it? Yes? Which presidents is it named after? It's both George Washington and Abe Lincoln. Oh, two. Okay. All right. All right. Not the current presidents? It used to be George Washington's birthday was celebrated and Abe Lincoln's birthday was celebrated independently, but both in February. Oh, and, and they, they combined them together. Okay, all right. So, so who would you say is the greatest statesman in American history? George Washington. George Washington, okay. And why would you say that? Because he stood out at the uh, uh, Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Uh, he was the president of that board of 52 people who originated our Constitution. Uh, he held a firm hand all through the War of Independence. He's the one who really stayed with the, uh, the idea of revolution. He's the only one who didn't run in many instances. And afterwards, as our first president, uh, he kept us together during a very tumultuous time in which we were trying to figure out how to be a nation. That's an excellent answer. 
Another one, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, okay. From the same uh, period. So at least you should spend more time with these gentlemen. For President's Day, you should have had him get the talk on President's Day. All right, who else would you, might you suggest? Lincoln. Lincoln. Who said Lincoln? And why did you say Lincoln? So the answer said we might not have a country, so if Washington is the father, the founder of the nation, uh, Lincoln was the re-founder of the nation or the preserver of the nation. Uh, so those would be normally the answers that you'd get, uh, the founding father's generation or Lincoln. Uh, but if you take Lincoln, I'm not saying I probably choose Lincoln, but uh, what are Lincoln's two most famous speeches? You know? Right. This, you should come. Bring your chair up here. We'll, we'll do it together. Did everybody, did everybody agree with David? Yes. So the Gettysburg Address is probably the most famous. And what's the other one? The Emancipation Proclamation, says Father Brian. He's incorrect in that. Incorrect. Incorrect. Sad. Um, important. But no. The, second, the, mo the other most important address of Lincoln is probably the greatest political speech ever given in the English language. Right, Paul? <laughs> Which is, you want to say it again for those second who... Second inaugural. Second inaugural. Did you hear that, Father Brian? Thank you very much. The second, <laughs> uh, the second inaugural address delivered in March 1865, just uh, a few weeks before his assassination. Uh, that's where you get the, uh, you know, with charity towards all, malice towards none, the... 200 years of the bondsman's toil, all of that, that's from the second inaugural address. What's interesting about that is that uh, those two addresses of Lincoln are actually really about reconciliation, about how to bring together people who have been fighting, about how to honor the dead, how to honor what they fought for. Uh, they're not actually, like the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring something, a new principle, but how to bind up the wounds, also from the second inaugural uh, address. And the figure I want to talk about today would be in that uh, tradition. So, I don't know if you've read, you have this book, if you read the Magnificat, you know, for many years, Anthony Eslin is a very fine writer, you do these little historical sketches. And the figure I want to talk about today, he calls the greatest statesman of the 20th century. This is what he says, he says, he was a Roman Catholic committed to the social teaching of the church and arguably the single greatest statesman of the 20th century. That's, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So who would that be? If I said, who's the single greatest statesman of the 20th century? The quote is, well, the quote is, it just says that he was a Roman Catholic. So that excludes Winston Churchill, which is the most common answer to that question. And not a bad answer, but by the way, but a Roman Catholic committed to the social teachings of the church and arguably the single greatest statesman of the 20th century. So there's nothing in the quotation about the country. <laughs> You're asking for a clue. He's asking for a clue. Okay. A clue. Well, David is not the only one who can answer the questions. 
I think because you gave good answers, everybody is intimidated to now answer after you because uh, Father Brian answered after you and got it wrong. That's embarrassing. <laughs> That's embarrassing. No one else wants to be embarrassed. Was he a pope? Was he a pope? No. But you're right, it would be Catholic if you were supposed to write Good choice. Who else? Okay, you want a clue? Yeah. So he, uh, he, what's that? He died in 1867. 1967. Oh, uh, Father, uh, the TV guy. The TV guy. The Catholic TV guy with a cape. Yeah. No, it said statesman. Statesman. Just someone who held public office. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, statesman. All right, so, okay. See, and this is part of my point, so if nothing else... No, he died in Fulton Sheen died December 9th, 1979. So... <laughs> uh -huh. He's not allowed at trivia. I know. <laughs> okay, so... So he. So let me put it this way before to tease you once more, then I'll give you the answer. So, who do you think in the history of the 20th century had the greatest challenges? If you tried to imagine, okay, someone who had really big challenges, because normally to be a great statesman, you have to have, you have to respond to great events. So, if you try to figure out amongst countries that you're familiar with and this one you're familiar with, what would be like, what would be one of the biggest challenges you could imagine that would face somebody? Communism? Okay, good. Second World War? Okay. So someone who died in 1867 would have, 1967, pardon me, would have, uh, it was your erroneous answer on the Emancipation so Proclamation that is, that is typed, that has got me going back to the 1860s. What year is the Emancipation Proclamation, do you know? Nope. Truman, okay, he'd be around that time, but Truman's not Catholic. Uh, Emancipation Proclamation was 1863. Which is why when Martin Luther King did his talk at the wall, at the mall, it was 100 years after. John Lennon, who said John Lennon? Amanda, would you, uh, would you escort her politely out of the room? John Lennon, neither Catholic nor a statesman. But you're right, someone who, who experienced the Second World War, someone who had to deal with communism. Okay, I'll give you the, okay. We're not doing too well, that's all right. I'll give you the country, Germany. 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 Neither the, thank you. What's your name? George. George, okay. It's not George. <laughs> Yes, he said George, though. He did say George. He was lying. Oh. I'm wearing disguise. Okay. In case you got the answer wrong, you were embarrassed. Uh, okay, Brad. Why did you say George? I don't know why he said George. He's another one of the Beatles. Okay. So, all those people who gave wrong answers will have to buy Brad and David a drink later because they gave good answers. So, uh, excellent idea. That's an excellent idea. 
Uh, so Conrad Adenauer is the correct answer. So let me tell you who Conrad Adenauer was. First of all, who has never heard his name before? Chancellor side, so quite a few, okay. Chancellor of Germany. Chancellor of Germany. So Conrad Adenauer was born in 1876, so just under 150 years ago. So he's not from a you know, long ago time. He was born around the same time as, say, G.K. Chesterton, like 1874. So, you know, he belongs to that era. He would have come as a young man at the end of the, at the turn of the century. He would have lived through the First World War uh, in his 30s. Um, and he would have seen Europe tear itself apart in the First World War. Then he becomes mayor of Cologne. Now, the mayor of Cologne, Cologne is the Rhineland's most prominent city. It has a unique status almost in that the Lord Mayor of Cologne is a, at that time, in the 1920s, he became Lord Mayor, would be, a, would be a figure of national importance. And he'd been Lord Mayor, I think, for 10 years. In 1933, when the Nazis came to power, he'd been 10 years in office. And he was a very strong opponent of the Nazi Program. It, partly it's because of the, you know, in Germany it's different national um, identities and make up Germany. He was a, from the Rhineland and he was always a bit suspicious of what he would call the Prussian temptation, which he thought was to elevate the nation a little bit, you know, more than it ought to be. Uh, leave it at that. But, uh, so he was a little, he was nervous about the Nazis, simply, partly just because of their general idea of German nationalism, even aside from the other elements today that we more associate with the Nazi party. But he was an opponent, and so very quickly after the uh, uh, Nazis came to power in 1933, they pushed him out. So they, uh, he was deposed as Lord Mayor of Cologne, and he was actually kind of uh, exiled in his own country. So he'd been very prominent. He would, by this time, have been in his, uh, 1933, he'd have been in his early, late 50s. And uh, he was exiled. So actually he went and he lived at a Benedictine monastery called Maria Lock, very famous monastery in uh, Germany. Uh, the abbot there had been a boyhood friend of his. And he said, I need a place to, to live. Uh, to be kind of an internal exile, and he, was, he took refuge there. And while he was there, he was a very devout Catholic, and he studied very carefully the social teaching of the church, which at that time would have composed principally two documents, one by Leo XIII, called Rerum Novarum, from 1891, and another one by Pius XI, who would have been Pope at that time, 1931, called Quadragesimo Anno. Uh, both of which spoke about the social order and the principles of the social order, and both of which warned against the concentration of power, especially state power. And so that's where he was. So he was a deposed figure. You know, he had been very prominent, and but the new regime had no room for him. And so he lived with the Benedictines, and then as things got more heated, uh, the Benedictine monks there at Maria Locke were divided about their views on the Nazi regime. It was a divisive issue for them. And eventually he was dismissed from the, uh, from the um, 
Somebody said, how? Well, because, you know, the Nazis were democratically elected. So there were people who supported them. And uh, after the war, there were fewer people who supported them than at the beginning. But uh, at a certain point, he was no longer able to live with the monks there because his presence itself was, the abbot thought, a threat to the security of the monastery. And so he went into a kind of internal hiding. He would move around a lot from, you know, sometimes changing even several times a week his where he was sleeping and so forth uh, because he feared for his safety. So, you know, he lived a, you know, this man who had been one of the most prominent figures in the country was now on the run. Then 1945, of course, the Nazis are defeated. And the question is, is what are you going to do with Germany? So Germany was completely occupied at the end of the Second World War the, into four zones. The, the Allied zone was American, French, and British, and the uh, Eastern zone was the uh, Soviet zone. And there was no government of Germany. It was fully occupied and all the occupying powers uh, governed the country. But somebody had to be found to govern this country, and they needed someone who had prominence, who had respect, who had experience, but was not contaminated by the Nazi regime. And there are very few of those, right? because most Germans in the ruling class were part of the regime, obviously. So there are very few candidates for this role. And uh, at the, the Allied powers, the occupying powers, there wasn't elections at that time, chose Adenauer as the one, and he was now by, he was in his late 60s at this time, uh, in 1945. So he was the sort of appointed allied governor of Germany, which itself was a difficult position because if you were a German and now your country is occupied by foreign powers, Americans, British, French, and Soviets, uh, you may not have been pleased with the person they chose to be the, the governor of your country. But he had the respect to do that. And then without going into all the details, he basically then emerged as a respectable leader. He fashioned a kind of working coalition, which lasted for almost 40 years, called the Christian Democrats. He and others in the reconstruction of Europe thought that they, Europe had to have a democracy movement, but it's also had to be a principled one, and they chose Christian democracy as their main vessel, which dominated politics in Germany and Italy for a long time. And then when, in, when they actually created the Federal Republic of Germany, which was better known as West Germany, in 1949, he became the chancellor. So now Germany was governing itself again in 1949, and he was the first chancellor, and he became the, he was the chancellor from 1949 to 1963. So you know, basically from the age of about 70 to into his 80s. So he was, uh, yeah, thank you. yeah, he was 1949, so he would have been 49 and 26. Yeah, so he would have been in the 70s at that time. And he governed for 14 years into his early 80s. He retired in 1963, and he died in 1967. So what is the importance of him his importance is that he had four, five, five enormous challenges 
any one of which would have been a defining thing for any other figure or any person. He had five enormous challenges. The first one was the economic <coughs> reconstruction of Germany. Because Germany was largely destroyed, and so he had to put in place a policy that would lead to the economic <coughs> reconstruction of Germany. And that was an enormous success. They, the Germans call it social democracy, which means it's a sort of a free market system, but with government and labor direction. But by the time he finished, in the, by the 1960s, already Germany was back on its feet economically, and not only back on its feet, it was actually an economic power you know, within 20 years of the war, which is an extraordinary achievement. But that achievement was really secondary to, and that was assisted, as you know, by the Marshall Plan and so forth. But he had to figure out what he was going to do on four fronts in terms of reconciliation. And he had lived through the end of the First World War. And the end of the First World War was uh, the Allies, who defeated Germany then, took a view that Germany should be uh, punished severely for its role. And they put very onerous conditions on the conditions of the, after the armistice of November 11th, 1918. And it became an accepted view that after the Second World War that, that had been a mistake. That the desire to uh, punish, impoverish, and even humiliate Germany created conditions that were sympathetic for the rise uh, of the Nazi uh, party. So that's a different thing than we think about today when we think about cancel culture, but the spirit is similar, which is that your rival or your enemy is to be punished, eliminated, driven out, right? this kind of um, what I call severe policy. Right? That it, could, it can have cultural expressions, you know, in, in the arts or on in academic expressions at the university, or could have political expressions. Uh, but that was actually the official kind of animating thinking of the Allied powers in the 1920s. We'll go back to Lincoln for a moment. You know, Lincoln uh, was willing to fight a civil war, a very bloody civil war. And but one of my favorite uh, quotations from Lincoln is that he was giving a speech, and after the speech, uh, a lady in the audience judged him to be insufficiently uh, severe with the Southerners, with the Confederacy, and spoke to him afterwards and challenged him that he was not, uh, that really instead of the policy he was advocating, he should, he should seek the total destruction of his enemies. That was what she said. That's Mr. Press, that's what you should do. I don't know if he was present at the time, I think he was. So that's your part. That's what you should be. You should seek the total destruction of your enemies. And Lincoln, as only Lincoln could do, said, well, so Madam, uh, am I not destroying my enemies if I make them my friends? Right? Have you heard that? You probably learned that in high school, I'm sure, right? Is that maybe not? What's that? You never heard it? Okay. President's Week, uh, President's Week information for you here. Yes. <laughs> Very good. So, but it's a very powerful idea, right? Is that if you want to destroy your enemy, there are two ways to do it. You could destroy him, right? Or you could make him your friend. But that's actually very biblical, right? If we, I, 
I don't have the exact quotation, but you know, in, when St. Paul says Jesus came to break down the hostility, the enmity between, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, right? He destroys, he tears down the wall between them and he constructs in himself a unity of the two. What Jesus is doing there, what St. Paul is talking about Jesus doing there, is that you don't destroy your enemies, you destroy the enmity. Right? So there's two ways. You can destroy the enemy, so you leave the enmity but destroy the enemy. He no longer exists. That's one way to deal with it. The other way is you destroy the enmity, and therefore the enemy is no longer an enemy. Right? So one way to destroy your enemies is to make them your friends. That's not Adenauer, that's uh, Lincoln. So what are the four challenges? So first of all, he had to reconcile the German people with themselves. So after the war, they are confronted with the reality of what was done by their government, in their name, right? in the war, in the, uh, the Holocaust, in the political persecution in the country, uh, of which Adenauer himself had suffered. So they have to reconcile with themselves. And what do you do? One of the most pressing questions Adenauer had to figure out is who do you exclude from governing Germany? Whom do you punish for the crimes they committed? And whom do you rehabilitate? Because you can't get rid of everybody. Right? But then you can't excuse everything either. So it's a very, it's, it's a very, very complicated question. And you could imagine there were great divisions. Because it wasn't a principle, a question of only in principle, it's okay, should this man be allowed to be a deputy governor? Should this man not be allowed to be? How do you decide? Right? And how do you decide in such a way that you don't provoke even more hostility or civil strife? How do you decide in a way that people will agree and accept it? It's, a, it's an enormously complicated question. So that was the first one he had to solve, which he did. He had to. The second one is he had to reconcile most specific, well, with the Allies. Right? So the Allied powers had defeated his country. So what, what was his policy going to be about the United States, about Britain, about France, and about the Soviet Union? Right? What was the relations going to be? Were they going to be a kind of a cold peace? Were they going to reconcile? He chose reconciliation. And in fact, he allied West Germany with, by the end of his time, with the, with the NATO alliance, with Britain, with France, with France's special case, but with Britain, with the United States, and with Western Europe, right? It was not possible at the time to have a reconciliation with the East, with the Soviets. That's the communist point that you mentioned earlier. So he had an anti-communist policy, but there was not a possibility of a reconciliation, and that came, as you know, much later. So we had to situate Germany in, in kind of a new Europe, and it's actually an astonishing achievement. Within 10 years of the war ending, he was a formal allies with the country they fought against. That's a remarkable achievement. The third reconciliation that he had to pursue was with France. So France and Germany had fought three wars. For 1870, Franco-Prussian War, for second, First World War, Second World War. And they had been there, at the heart of Europe was this tension for many, many, many years, and he had to, to decide he was going to reconcile with France, which he did. 
And since that time, France and Germany have not only been allies, but have been the cart of the new Europe. And whether you, you might disagree with this or that policy of the European Union, but the fact that France and Germany for 70 plus years have been unified allies is an astonishing historical achievement, given what had happened the previous several hundred years. So, and there were some very significant moments in visiting France, Charles de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle visiting uh, Germany and so forth. And then the fourth reconciliation was with the Jewish people after the Shoah. So he chose to recognize the State of Israel, created in 1947, 47, 48, as the representative of the Jewish people, and Germany and Israel concluded a, an agreement, uh, an acknowledgement of the crimes committed, uh, an indemnification payment, um, and it was controversial in Germany, it was massively controversial in Israel, Right? The divided Israeli society, they said, you know, should we forgive? Do we even have the right to make a reconciliation? Maybe we don't even have the right to reconcile, given you know, who are we speaking for when we reconcile? You know? Should we expect, should we accept damages? Yeah. Is that a, 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 a token towards justice, or is that to cheapen justice? Right? These were very, very immense questions. And he had to navigate that, both make the presentation uh, of the offers and then try and persuade both Germans and Israelis. So he did all that. Right? So we can talk in the question period about some of those things, but four challenges. And in each of those challenges, which are remarkable in and of themselves, he managed to achieve what you might say breaking down the enmity or maybe too strong to say he converted enemies to friends, but at least he could be friendly with historic enemies, right? So this is not a, these were not minor issues of division. Right? So the fact that he achieved all that in 14 years, in his 70s and 80s, you know, when he may have thought that his days were in the past, uh, after he'd been deposed as mayor of Cologne. So that's why Anthony Esselin, whose judgment is much better than mine, could say perhaps the greatest statesman of the 20th century. I think actually it's not really, I mean there are a few other contenders who did great things, but no one faced the challenge. Churchill, who especially the English-speaking world we honor greatly, Churchill had one great challenge. He had a long career, but his the great challenge was the prosecution of the war, for which he deserves a lot of admiration. But he didn't have to worry about these other issues. Adenauer had to do all of that. And what's important for Catholics is that Adenauer, uh, he's animating what formed his way of thinking, his approach to statesmanship, was his Catholic faith, both intellectually and uh, spiritually. I don't think he would have been able, he would have chosen to pursue the path of reconciliation uh, if it hadn't been for his Catholic faith. And the relevance to today to the question of cancel culture is that at the heart of cancel culture is the idea that you eliminate that which you disagree with or that which you're opposed to, even if for good reason. Right? And he chose a more difficult path. I'll end with one anecdote from his life. So his colleagues, you know, to the rebuilding of Europe. So you might have thought, it would be reasonable to think in 1945 that, is, that Europe has had two massive wars, right? total 
civilizational failure, right? It's hard, you can't think of a, a greater failure of the Christian civilization of Europe that it produced the First World War and Second World War, all in Christian countries, right? It's true that some of the regimes, like the Nazis, were atheistic regimes, but the fact is, all in Christian Europe, Christian for a long time, right? Christian civilization in Europe led to a complete total catastrophe, right? Total failure, civilizational failure, these two great wars. Which explains why many people quite recently would think that the Christian faith has no longer anything to offer, right? because this, this is its fruit. So you think in 1945 that the likelihood of there being a leadership class that could rebuild a peaceful and prosperous Europe would be very unlikely. And yet, out of the shadows, the ashes of the war emerge Adenauer, and two of his key colleagues who are also Catholics, very devout men, also students of Catholic social teaching, uh, in Italy, Alcidi de Gasperi, and in France, Alcidi de Gasperi was the prime minister in Italy, and in France, uh, Robert Schumann, who was the foreign minister. And the three of them, basically, with a common vision, Christian democratic vision, put together what became the post-war order in Europe, and the beginning of that was the European Coal and Steel Agreement, which is 1951, signed in Paris. The Treaty of Rome came before that, was signed in, in Rome, it's called the Treaty of Rome. But very interestingly, so the Treaty of, the, the European Coal and Steel Agreement, with the original six countries, which was Italy, France, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, in, was signed April 18th, 1951. And the night before, so the key figures, I mean the Benelux countries are very small, but the key figures were of course Italy, France, and Germany. And so the night before, so the Paris, the signing ceremonies in Paris in April 1851, the night before, Adenauer, de Gasperi, and Schumann meet at the Maria Locke Monastery in Germany, it's about 500 kilometers from Paris, and they spend that day and night praying for this new vision of Europe. And then the next day, I, I presume they took the train, maybe they flew, I don't know, but anyway, the next morning they went to Paris and signed the agreement. And so, one would not have expected that, that those such men would have existed at that time and would have been able to be as influential as they are. So it's actually a very proud moment for uh, statesmanship and for Catholic statesmanship in the 20th century in a very difficult time. And so I think you should know more, people should know more about Conrad uh, Adenauer. He's very famous in Germany. You'll find many things named after him, scholarship programs, buildings. Uh, but outside of Germany, um, he's actually, he's more forgotten and he, sh and he shouldn't be. So, so there you are. Thanks to my colleagues, David and Brad. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we'll conclude there. Thank you. So are you in charge, Amanda? You're not in charge. Oh. You If I want to ask anybody has any questions, I could ask that. Okay. What if I don't? No, I'll be happy. Any questions? And we can have a discussion. How long is this? What time do you want to finish?
So we have half an hour for questions and comments, and you're first. David and Brad get first choice if they want, but Amanda, you can go ahead. They don't have their hands up. Do you think that someone like him could exist in today's climate, um, especially within the United States, someone who is um, such, a, such a devout Catholic with that mentality, like you said, they met and prayed before they signed? Um, do you think that... In with today's, just every, all the different factors that someone like that could exist in today's political climate, especially in the United States? Well, the thing with unexpected leaders who seem providential is that they're unexpected. So, uh, if you were in Germany in 19, even if you were a very fervent anti-Nazi in 1945 in Germany and said, is it possible that 20 years from now, we would have had it. He was retired at an in nineteen sixty-five. So he said, twenty years from now, could it, is it possible we could have had a chancellor who would have accomplished all those things? I think you'd say no. But he did them. For Americans, I mean, you know, Abraham Lincoln had a very unsuccessful political career until he didn't. Right? I think his first elected office was as uh, president, isn't it? No, is that right, Ron? I think it was correct. He was not a, uh, he was, he'd run for things, but he was defeated, right? So the first elected office was as president. I think that's true about Lincoln. I don't know if it's true because I, when uh, Donald Trump was elected, people said that about him, that he was the first one. But maybe, anyway, the point is it's rare. And Lincoln was not considered a, a dominant figure in, and of course in the late 1850s, you know, this, the, question, the country was headed towards war, and people were looking for you know, who's going to either you know, drive us further along the line that we want, or if we are opposed to where things are going, who's going to save us from what's coming? And, and Lincoln was not, would not have, if you made a list of 10 people in 1855, Lincoln would not have been on the list. It was not, I don't think. It, so, it doesn't, you're correct, it doesn't look like there's a figure who could, and the conditions seem unfavorable, uh, and it maybe is even impossible. But I would think that part of the hopefulness of Adenauer's life is that um, it, it's so unexpected. I mean, imagine he had, if he had dropped dead of a heart attack, and he had, you know, at 68, you know, his, his what was going to happen in his life happened, I think, after the age of 70. Winston Churchill, when he became prime minister in 1940, was 65 years old and had been the previous 10 years in exile. He, 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 they, people thought he, had, he was on the wrong side of key issues, he was no longer in office, and he only came back. So there are very, un, there are very unexpected turns in history. So. Father's gonna call me, he's gonna point out that I'm a melancholic, but I meant also sort of, I guess, how I feel like conditions are so much different politically now than in Lincoln's time where But they're worse than the 1850s? Well, I just mean like, they're all certainly of the, not. <laughs> all of the nuances in the political scene, I guess, with just things that didn't necessarily exist to the extent, like super PACs and things like that. Um, where are, people, are people able to put their faith on the forefront like that who are going to be running for office, I guess, I guess is what I'm saying. It's like, do you think... Well, I would say on that front, if our two figures are Lincoln and Adenauer, Lincoln, of course, was not a religious believer. 
in a conventional sense. He, had, he obviously knew a lot about the Bible. He had a great religious sensitivity, but, uh, and of course Adenauer was. Churchill, you also mentioned him, was not a particularly devout man. He supported you know, Christian faith and Christian manifestations of faith. Um, so I would answer that you're correct and say it doesn't look like it's possible. But then someone comes and doesn't, and then it becomes possible. And so part of the in statesmanship is to be able to imagine that something could be different. And you know, it works both ways. You know, someone comes along very powerfully in a political force and imagines that something could be different in a negative way. Yeah. That's how you get, you know, destructive revolutions or persecution. Someone comes along and says, well, we've accepted this and now I don't think we have to. We can, so it works both ways. But I think that the point, if you're looking at Germany in the 1940s or the United States in the 1850s, You'd say those were bleaker political times. Now, they didn't have digital media. There's other things that are different, but thinking, my goodness, those were, uh, things are not as bad in either country today as they were then. Other questions? George has one. <laughs> Is that your nickname, or do people call you that? No. Oh, okay. he's, oh, he's got a text. So... Uh... <laughs> Pope Francis addressed the diplomatic corps about cancel culture. What could, could you speak to? What this was the, the address this past January, you mean? Yes. What, okay. Could you just tell us a little bit about what? I don't know what I don't. I mean, I I read the address. I don't know what you're referring to, but he did speak about cancel culture today. I mean, cancel culture in different countries around the world has very particular meanings. So in the United States or Canada, we talk about cancel culture. You know, the idea is, you know, a professor says something in class, uh, somebody objects to it, and instead of it being a disagreement, now there's a desire to, you know, that he should be fired or, you know, that that's sort of what we mean. I don't know if that's what the Holy Father meant, because in Europe or in Latin America, you know, the same phenomena doesn't um, apply. But what cancel culture... I think what the Holy Father was getting at is that the two things. One is the point I was making is that in general that your um, your those who disagree, disagree with or rival should somehow be eliminated, right? You you don't and that he's very strong against because he's spoken often about the priority of dialogue and human fraternity. So that would be one thing he'd be against. I think more specifically in that address he was talking about in what you find in Europe is specifically Christian ideas or Christian positions are excluded, right? So someone might say that that view, which is a Christian view, should not be admitted to public debate. And I think that's, I think specifically that's what he was talking about in that uh, address. This is a quote okay. from that speech. He warned that under the guise of defending diversity, it ends up canceling all sense of identity. Right. Yeah, I think on that point would be the point that in Europe is, it has been really for almost 20 years now an issue is that uh, explicit Christian expressions are ruled out of order. So I think that's what he was talking about there. Probably a little bit less of our North American context, but right. thank you. Yes? I guess going off the, the first two, with 
sort of like collapse of a Christian, like a con communal Christian culture and, and worldview. And you, you spoke about how the Nazis were more atheist, but in general, Europe was more friendly to Christianity than they are now. And same with America. Do you think it's harder for a Christian, a Catholic leader, to, to emerge in that sense when much of the culture is actively hostile to religion itself and organized religion and all those things? Yeah, I think that you know, there's um, there are. Uh, there's a general sense that being too religious is, or being explicitly religious might be a hindrance in uh, public life, right? So, um, you know, famously when, you know, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain, 19, what, what was he elected, 1997, uh, 97 through well, 2010, uh, and, you know, one of his chief advisors said, you know, we don't do the God thing. But he was he his wife was a Catholic he was not Catholic he became Catholic later uh, but he was actually quite attempt like he, religion was important to him but don't talk about it in public right or like in this country you know when the George Jr. Bush was running for president in one of the debates he said that you know he was asked who his favorite philosopher was remember he said Jesus Christ which was a pious but somewhat perplexing answer. Um, most people don't think of you, but he said that's what he said. My favorite philosopher is Jesus Christ. Um, and afterwards, his father said, "You did well in the debate, but you know," he said, "I don't think you should have said that." You know, <laughs> that's not a politically advantageous answer. I don't think you objected on philosophical, theological grounds, but political grounds. So there is that sensibility, sure. And it would take courage for uh, for someone to be more explicit about his faith. But, you know, people like Adenauer and Charles de Gaulle and Churchill and that generation, the whole generation that rebuilt Europe after the war had been exiled. I mean, they paid a heavy price, right? So you have to be courageous, and they were courageous. But we shouldn't be too, we shouldn't be too complacent about the past or too negative about the present in that, you know, yes, that going back to what I said earlier, Europe was a much more Christian-friendly place, 1900 to 1950. And they had a massive civilizational failure. Over 100 million people died. Europe from 1950 to 2020 is a much less religious place. Right? But uh, war has not totally disappeared, but largely disappeared right, from the European scene. right? We watch the wars today, the war in Ukraine, war in Israel-Hamas war, and people are uh, rightfully concerned, you know, 15,000, you know, 30,000 casualties or 1,200 killed on October 7th or the death toll. In the First World War, those, they killed 10,000 people in one morning, right? You know, uh, the brutality of the 20th century and in a more religious culture. So we have to be, we, we, when we look at the past, we have to acknowledge that what, what was a more Christian culture in its expression and its thinking and its piety and its customs uh, also produced, or was not able to prevent great evils, which is not to say those evils were specifically Christian, but just to observe that the culture allowed things that were, um, you know, uh, you know, when you go back to um, 
to Lincoln, of course, one of other Lincoln's famous, I don't know, I don't know how famous they are, but I think you've heard this one, right, where Lincoln said the idea is not that we want, uh, that we think God should be on our side, but we think that uh, we should be on God's side, right? And he said, you know, both sides pray to the same God and invoke the same divine uh, assistance. So a more religious culture doesn't, by itself, prevent evils from prevailing. Anyway, on this side, is there anybody else on this side? They've all been on that side. This is the, well, no, Amanda was first on this side. Anybody else? No? Uh, yeah. This side is, this side, oh, okay. All right, the Emancipation Proclamation. <laughs> so, after he was canceled, Adnauer goes to a monastery. Correct. And pours over Rerum Navarro yeah. and the, his great works on social teaching. What would you advise for those who are in the political sphere or just trying to navigate through the political world today for their prayer and their, their study? Well, I think I would recommend prayer and study. Now, it's important to know that when Adenauer went, I mean, he thought he was finished. Like, it wasn't like he was planning, I'll go and make a retreat and I'll wait for this wave to crash and then I'll come back, right? He thought he was, maybe in, in 1933 he thought, okay, maybe, but by certainly 1940, or 19, you know, the heart of the war, when he's on the run, he would say, okay, you know, I'm trying to survive, and there's, it's not possible for me to imagine I'm going to come back. But he did come back. Maybe towards the end he realized that there weren't that many people who, of his background. But he didn't, um, he devoted himself to prayer and study of the truth, to pick up your theme from the evening, even though he didn't have a practical outlet for it, right? And, uh, you know, he said when he arrived at the monastery in 1933, he said, well, his friend was the abbot, he said, you have room for a man who has uh, no money and no place to live or something like that, you know? He thought he was finished. Now, people who are not finished, uh, I think, could devote themselves, and if you develop knowledge and piety and virtue, especially the virtue of courage, then when circumstances come around, you'll be ready. He was ready, not because he thought he had to be ready, but because he just he thought that's the way he should live. And when the circumstance came to him, he was ready, right? I mean, David could tell you something in the founding fathers, many of the founding fathers you know, they were going about other things, but they were, when the time came for them, they were, they were ready. And you make yourself ready, not at the moment. When the moment is time for action, you, that's too late. So you have to become the kind of person who you think you should be when the time comes ahead of time. I think that's one of the lessons of Adenauer's life, is that he was knowledgeable, he was devout, he studied, uh, and he was courageous, he took a stand, he suffered for it, and all those things made him ready when the time came. But uh, he didn't know the time was coming. So the way you get ready, you know, and that's true, by the way, of life in general, is that, you know, on the day that you have to write the exam, uh, it's too late to get ready then. Right? It may not be too late the night before, so you can study all night. 
but it's certainly too late when you're there in the exam. So you get ready. So the athletes know that. You know, musicians know that. Uh, people, you know, perform in stage plays. You know, it's too late when the lights when the curtain goes up. So you have to get ready before. And that's what Adnauer was doing. Right? And we have lots of biblical examples of that, right? Of, uh, you know, what was Elijah doing? What was Moses doing? Uh, what was Jesus doing during his hidden life? You know? St. Paul. St. Paul was actually unwittingly working on his zeal and his devotion and his capacity to sacrifice when he was persecuting the church. And when the time came for his conversion, he was ready. So... That's why I think I would say that. Yes? So going back to what you previously said about uh, there being more wars in a more Christian society, I was wondering if war is necessarily a greater evil than letting a society shift into more debauchery. Because in the past, there was more wars in Europe, but also in present-day America, we've had less wars and less death from wars, but we also have greater immorality and uh, evils promoted in general. Okay. Well, just to clarify, I didn't say that more Christian societies have more wars. I said that at a time that there were more wars, the society was more Christian. And the same thing could apply, by the way, in other parts of history and other cultures, right? So probably the most brutal war in terms of the actual, leaving aside the, you know, the Shoah, the Holocaust is, it's not really, I mean, it took place during the war, but it wasn't an active war. I mean, the Jews who were interned were not fighting. They were imprisoned and then they were exterminated. But in terms of war, probably the most brutal war of the 20th century was the um, Sino-Japanese War. I think the first one was 1932, but the 1937 started. Very interesting. If you go to the World War II Museum in uh, New Orleans, do you know why the World War II Museum is in New Orleans of all places? Hmm? because they built the landing craft for D-Day in the New Orleans uh, harbor, whatever it is. So it started off as the D-Day Museum, now it's the World War II Museum. Anyway, when you go into the museum, it says World War II, and it says 1937 to 1945. And I thought, how embarrassing. They got the dates of the World War II Museum wrong. <laughs> but they start 1937 because of that's when Japan and China went to war. So just to clarify that part of it. I wasn't making a claim about Christian culture and war. Uh, but is war worse than other social evils? That's an interesting question. Uh, you could imagine a war which is fought to defend some social good and the war is relatively limited and constrained and the evil that is prevented by the war is very grave. So you could, I, you could imagine a situation where you could say, okay, this war was better to fight the war than to prevent, it was better to fight this war than to allow this evil to prevail, right? You can imagine, you don't have to imagine if you're an American, because that's the argument of the Civil War, right? So this massively brutal war, I think 600 and some thousand deaths, if I'm correct. Um, tearing apart the social fabric and you know, Lincoln, Dr. Lincoln said, you know, if if we can do, if we can, if we can achieve without war, but if we, if war comes, then we'll accept it, right? So you can, that's a legitimate position. Uh, how you apply it is the, is the question, right? And certain social, you mentioned debauchery, 
Debauchery usually is not imposed from without, right? That's an internal corruption, you know, some evil like like enslavement or seizing of territory or something or, you know, just theft can be imposed from an external force. But if there's an erosion of moral character, that's usually not something that is imposed in a, in a conflict between states. It's an internal corruption. And, and a war is not very helpful for for that, right? I mean, if you say, what kind of war would you fight to restore? Lack of guidance comes What's that? What's that? Doesn't lack of guidance cause debauchery? Lack of guidance? Yeah. I mean, if you've got the wrong people in charge, why the wrong Yeah, his question, on, though, was about whether a war would be better than, a war would be a lesser social evil than a debauched society. Okay. Uh, yeah. A revolution against that debauched society, like, if the society has gotten corrupt enough, would a revolution against that to restore back to goods and, like, Again, harsher punishments or going back, like uh, bring people back to your side, would be a better like justification than letting evils continue. So, a, a, a violent revolution to restore moral order. Yeah. Okay. So this is you observe your neighbor uh, wasting his life playing video games and watching Netflix, and you think that oh, right? What's that? <laughs> so, I mean, it's you know, how would you? I mean, would would physical would a, would a revolution change that? I mean, it's not. There are there there are examples in history where people say, "Look, the, the order is corrupt. We are going to overthrow that order and impose a new virtue with the force of the state." Uh, but usually, those examples end up producing greater terrors because now you're giving the state the power, kind of totalitarian power, because you're trying to change hearts. And usually they're not in the direction of Christian virtue. They end up in totalitarianism, revolutions, French revolution. They usually end up in more state power. So I would be skeptical of, of, uh, of that. A conversion of heart through physical force, I don't think ends up being a conversion of heart. Probably you know, in our day, like the most the most effective in terms of successful uh, political revolution animated by religious principles for the restoration of moral order would be the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran, 1979. Right? That was the the logic of it was that the Shah of Iran had introduced a kind of westernizing liberal ethos into Iran, which was eroding their Islamic culture and virtue. And so they resorted to, it wasn't very violent. I mean, it was a violent revolution, but the Shah was deposed very easily. And so no, Iran is a very, you know, it's an important figure. Iran is the most important actor in a certain sense in what's going on in the Middle East today. So that would be the principal example we have of, a, uh, of that kind of approach that you're exploring would be the Iranian revolution in our time. Anybody else? How are we doing here? Oh, back in the corner. No, you're you haven't had a chance yet, so you're no, right no, here. I was pointing to him. Oh, you're oh, oh, you're oh my, Brad has an assistant. Wow, Brad's arrived with an entourage. Just a quick. Did you give him the earlier answer? Did you feed that to him from the back row? No. Okay. I'm Charlie McCarthy. No. 
just a quick observation on this United States democracy. We've had two Catholic presidents mm -hmm. from 1961 to 63 and today. You have, that's also a historical fact, so <laughs> yes. Just an observation. Right. Uh, but yeah, I would, you know, the Adenauer drew upon his Catholic faith and we can admire that, but he was not, there are other figures who draw, you know, draw upon other uh, traditions. You know, Charles de Gaulle was Catholic, uh, but you know, it wasn't, his faith was not as central to him as it was to Adenauer. Uh, Churchill, I already mentioned him, some of the other figures, you know, the key figures on the American side, you know, FDR, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm not really, I'm not that knowledgeable with FDR, but I think his religion was worn sort of very lightly. You know, it wasn't a central aspect. Uh, I know here in the North Country, which I find amusing because there's a whole country, very large one, that's north of it. But anyway, um, the, uh, the, uh, the North Country is so proud of the North Country. Um, that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, right? What's his connection here? He became president when he was in the Adirondacks. Right. Remember who? You know why he became president? That's not why he became president, but but it is something he said. So that's excellent. That's excellent. Right. Was he the youngest president? Yeah, of McKinley, right? Was he the Buffalo. Oh, yes. Another New York State. They killed the president one side of New York State, the other side they made the new one. Excellent. Uh, is uh, Teddy Roosevelt the youngest president ever elected? Kennedy. Kennedy. Was he, when Kennedy became president, he was younger than when Teddy Roosevelt became president? Do you know the answer? I'm sorry. Teddy Roosevelt. The youngest? Teddy Roosevelt was the youngest president, but he was not elected. Right. But when he became president, he was the youngest. Uh, Kennedy was the youngest to be elected president, right? Because he was the president for a while before that. Okay, that's the. I presume that's the end. You did it wonderfully, Father. Very good. So Father Brian wants to say thank you, and then I have another story I want to tell, and you can decide whether you get to tell it or not, because he says no, and you can decide. Yes, a word of thanks. Uh, also a word of encouragement for next time. So many of the themes of um, the, you know, to follow up from this cancel culture, next week we're real blessed to have uh, O.K. Ndebay, who's going to be presenting, um, who's, was a, was a, a uh, visiting professor here at St. Lawrence University, so number you might have had a chance to meet with him. He lives now with his wife and family in Connecticut, uh, but he's going to be speaking on the persecution of Christians, um, specifically in Nigeria, but he's also seeing some of the implications um, here in the States as well. So it's going to be a very interesting talk. I hope uh, you can join us again next week. For now, uh, one more, more word of thanks to Father Raymond, and I know the answer is already yes, for, unless you have to go, he has a story he wants to tell you, but you clap for him one more time to show you you want to.
I was hoping that they would vindicate me, but you preempted that. So this is the story. So many years ago, 2004, Father Brian was out in Plattsburgh, and uh, they invited me to preach a parish mission there, so I did the mission. At the end of it, Father Yankovic, is it? That's right. Um, thanks me, and he gives me the little, the little bag, gift bag, which is kind, so I thank you. He said, no, you should open it in front of everybody. So I open it, and it's maple syrup, which the North Country is so proud of their maple syrup. And so I said, thank you for being polite. And then he says, in front of everybody in the church, he says, we thought you would might like to know what real maple syrup tastes like. <laughs> Which is a, uh, it's a good story, Amanda. I don't not believe the baby uh, I want to say. I'm married with her swag. It's a good story. It's a great story. So the thank you gift is not a thank you, it's an insult, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so you know what real maple syrup tastes like. And they all have a big laugh at my expense. And so I think I should say something. I have to defend, right? All my honor. I have to defend my honor. Paul grew up in Buffalo, so he's very friendly to Canadians right across the border. And so I said, "Well, I'm very sorry. It's a very kind of gift, but I can't take it across the border with me." And he said, "No, no, it's all right. You can take it. You can take maple syrup across the border." I said, "It's legal." <laughs> but I said, as a Canadian, if I'm taking maple syrup from New York across the border, they'll know I'm lying about everything else. <laughs> because why would you ever do that? <laughs> but anyway, it's good to be in the north. Good to be down here in the north country. All right.